UX Podcast Episode 142. Hi, and welcome to UX Podcast, balancing business technology and users. Now, hold on. Let's iterate that. Hi, and welcome to UX Podcast, balancing business technology and people every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden. I'm James Roy Lawson. And I'm Pad Axbom. Ooh, nicely done, James. Did I throw you yes, off? Yes, I, I wasn't prepared for that. Interesting. Uh, yeah, we have been talking about that, well, haven't we? We've been yeah. talking about it. And we're talk- we, d- we discussed um, actors, agents, um, uh, what did you say? Participants. 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 Participation. <laughs> it's raining outside. Um, and, and all these different words. Mm. And then users, of course. And we thought, no, at least this time, we'll, we'll tweak it and we'll try saying people. Dear listener. That's kind of beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's almost as if we're talking about humans. So we, um, today, in this episode, we have for you two interviews um, with um, Leo Frischberg. And I'm, I'm saying that in a Swedish manner, and I'm going to keep on doing it. And um, Lou Rosenfeld. And both of these were interviewed at um, Interact London 2016. And Lou Rosenfeld, most of the people in the, in the industry will know who he is. He's the owner uh, of Rosenfeld Media, but uh, even more so, he's the author, co-author of uh, The Bible of UX uh, for many, the informa- information architecture for the World Wide Web. And we interviewed him back in episode James... 129. Ah, yes. uh, and in that uh, interview, we talked to him a bit about uh, his workshop, Designing a Better You, and we got a small taste of that uh, in his opening keynote at Interact London, and that's what we'll be talking uh, to him about in this in- interview. Yeah, he runs, a, he runs a kind of workshop activity on us in the, at the conference, which me and you yeah, both I love like it. Per when speakers. Uh, and it was a great, a great way to start off a conference, too, that we would get people talking, and in the break, we all know each other. Save your <laughs> reflections for later, Per. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, first. But f- first off, we've got Leo. Leo, Leo Frischberg. <laughs> Frisch. No, I didn't what? say. F- <laughs> I'll go with Frischberg. You would go with Frischberg. Okay, this is a really nice guy. So I, I hope he'll, he'll he'll accept that we're kidding and out around with his name. Uh, he wears excellent hats, uh, and he he ended on our first day. I think he had a closing keynote. He he's. Um, been doing this or been in the industry for over 40 years uh, so respect for that and uh, he's, he t- gave a talk about artifacts from the future which I really liked the impact of time travel on design and he talked about back to the future and of course if someone talks about back to the future then uh, that's A already in, in my book they, they win your heart straight away with, um, with a DeLorean yes so we're going to play Leo first and then Lou <laughs> We're joined now um, by Leo Frischberg. Oh, I, I said that in Swedish. You notice how I automatically mm. pronounce your name more Swedish? It was perfect. Okay. Mm. Yeah. It was actually perfect. Okay. Okay. <laughs> 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 and your talk yesterday, you, you did the closing keynote here um, at Interact London. Um, Artifacts from the future, the impact of time travel on design. It's true. I did give that talk yesterday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you were telling us that you can predict the future, but you're always wrong. It is. A, it's that was the most quoted tweet I saw. I saw that too. <laughs> yeah. and, and it was explicitly asked them not to tweet it. And yeah. there they went ahead and did it. So, yeah. <laughs> so yet again, half predicting the future there. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's an example of it. Please don't do this. Mm. There they go and do it. So you brought us on this journey talking about how 
we can look at artifacts from the future in the same way that we look at artifacts from the past, which was quite topical because we're in a museum, which is nice as well. Right. But so tell us a bit more about how we can how we can use that. Well, you, uh, you had a new word for us even. It's I'm going to try it. Oh, go on. Idocronisms. Oh, beautiful. Pear, oh, that's fantastic. Oh wow. <laughs> you got it on first try. Thank you. you attempted that. Spectacular. Yeah. Well, so the talk, with that mm. the creation of the word was a bit of a conceit for the purpose of the talk. The notion of magical artifacts from the future is the key element of this process that I've uh, written down called presumptive design. Mm. And Charles Lambden and I wrote this book last year on it. Um, I think one of the... Uh, additional contributions that I discovered when I was building the talk for uh, Interact London 16 was that exact uh, point that you just brought up here, and that is we are so comfortable interpreting artifacts from the past that mm. we have no problem uh, looking at those and uh, agreeing that they're degraded through time, mm. that they are probably from a foreign culture, mm. even if they're in the same country we're in. It's from an ancient time with different mores and ethics and values, um, and that they are ambiguous, meaning they could mean one thing if we looked at it one way, or they could be something if we look at it another way. And it occurred to me, even as I was working on this topic, on this talk, um, that those were the attributes that Charles and I talk about uh, with respect to these artifacts from the future. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, how wonderful, how symmetrical, yeah. right? Now, the key difference was, and I didn't have a chance to mention this in the talk, is that we believe the past is concrete and anchored. It happened. It's, yeah. It is it's the past. You can't alter it because it's mm. done. It's done. Mm. But we know from uh, history and various histories that history can be rewritten based on you know, the victor or yes. a change mm. in sensibility and so forth mm. and so on. So even the past is subject to interpretation. Mm. But still, we're pretty convinced it happened, right, because we have an artifact from right. it. If we could have that same sensibility about the future and take these uh, proto-idochronisms, these not yet quite uh, magical artifacts that appear as if by magic in our designers' notebooks, in our journals, if we could take those, offer them to an audience, get those audiences' reactions to it, which is the magic that turns them into this conceit called mm -hmm. an idochronism, we can anchor the future. <coughs> Up until that reaction, it's true. It's fuzzy. They, they're all over the place. It's a highly dynamic potential. It could be future X, could be future Y. Yeah. But as soon as we have those conversations with real people, a future emerges from those conversations. And it's very difficult, in my experience, and I've been doing this for many years, it's very difficult to get those kinds of stories out of people off a blank sheet of paper. Mm -hmm. Oh, tell us what you want. Tell yeah. us tell us what you would imagine could happen if, mm -hmm. right? All Good sorts yeah. of wild yeah. fantasy stories come out of people's mm. minds, but many times not what they actually really want. Not wants. at all. Mm -hmm. Very rarely. And it's it's great that they can produce science fiction stories for us, but mm. those <laughs> those are not the future, right? Mm. But when you offer them a an artifact that irritates them mm. as the Johnny B. Good clip from uh, Back to the Future where Marty McFly sort of irritates the prom goers with his Jimi Hendrix interpretation. When you irritate somebody, they are going to help you 
better understand what would be better for mm. them. They want to do that because they don't want to be irritated. And if you come to them saying, gee, I'm sorry I irritated you. Tell me what was irritating about that. Mm. They will suddenly reveal all of these things that were irritating about this, this artifact. Mm -hmm. It's like a tool of negation. Like instead of asking what you want, you give them something they don't want and they tell you what's wrong with it, which then implies... Spot on. Yeah. Absolutely perfect. And it, 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 it's based on the, and again, I didn't get into that theory into the talk, but it's based on this uh, well-accepted notion that it is far easier to edit than it is to create. Yeah. So if you offer somebody something that you are expecting them to edit, mm -hmm. it is nearly effortless for people to critique mm -hmm. or criticize mm -hmm. an offering that you've given them, right? Yeah. What's the first thing that comes to mind? All the negative things that you can think of. Mm. Great. If you suddenly are open to them being negative, mm. now they're being invited to be a critic. And, and right. that tends to be a, a very enjoyable experience for them, right? Mm. Yeah. Now, the sad part about all of that, and this is where I also, this is all covered in the book, Presumptive Design, those artifacts that are magical from the future generally aren't coming out of my head. They're coming out of my client's head. So the client's team I have facilitated or my design team has facilitated the creation of these artifacts, but they are, they are beloved by the client's internal mm. team. Now we have a very interesting point of tension the baby mm. that they think is imbued with all of this magic and wonderfulness is viewed as ugly by their users. How do we manage that conversation so that they are not offended or hurt right. <coughs> yeah. and are not defensive, right? We want to let those critiques flow, right? Mm. And that's, that's kind of where the process of presumptive design Yeah, because you've got, you've got two... Um, opposite sides there so there's, a, there's a quite a gap between that um, presumption that what they've created is is magical and and precious and, and exactly right and then the the dawn of reality from mm. the, the the testing with somebody who says no actually not at all so you've got to bring those two sides right together. and so now imagine that that's the way most products are built today mm. anyway but they usually invest a million whatever, kroners, yeah. dollars, yeah. pounds, yeah. Yeah. and only discover that delta, that difference, after it's gone to market. Yeah. Mm. And so my point to... With the sunken cost and then, of course, all, all the consequences costs yeah. and so forth and so on, right? Mm. And so you say, why would you want to do that? Mm. If you're operating under hallucina hallucination that your baby is beautiful, mm. wouldn't you want to dispel that as quickly as possible with the least cost so that mm. you don't find that out down the road? Um, it sounds like common sense, <laughs> uh, but it does take a little bit of um, coaching to get clients to be vulnerable. Mm. And that's where the, the right. courage comes in on the design side. We have mm. to be very courageous and say, it's okay. You're going to mm. be okay. Mm -hmm. We're not, this is all make-believe. It's not, it's not a real mm. thing. We aren't investing a lot of money. The worst thing that will happen is, we don't get the results we're looking for. But we haven't spent very much money, so the risk is low. But in reality, we get really good results most of the time, and the cost is low. So the benefit-cost ratio is, is really quite, mm. quite high. So. Has, there, has there ever been a, a time when you've done this and haven't learned something? 
Uh, no, actually. Mm. And I've been doing this for 15 years. Mm. Yeah. But every time I go into it, I am frightened that I'm not going to learn something. Every oh, really? time. Interesting. Every time, because I go, well, you know, they really believe it, and I don't know anything about their customers. I don't know anything mm. about their situation, mm. and they really are passionately believing this is it. They certainly must know more about this than yeah. I do, mm. right? But they say things that are so, they're so confident in their assumptions. Mm. Well, aren't we always, right? We're mm. so confident. Yeah. Like one of the assumptions that they never bring up but is implicit is that they're going to be in business next year. Mm. This is an operating <laughs> assumption, <laughs> right? Mm. Yes. But we never actually have a conversation about that because mm. that's really vulnerable, right? Yes. We just assume that's true. Mm. But when we go out with some of these things to their customers or their users, we can actually come back and say, if you field this, you may not be in business next year because it is that bad, mm. right? We are getting that bad of a reaction to it. And if you're investing this kind of money into it, mm. you might actually be at an existential point. Mm. So uh, I'm hyper-conscious of these assumptions. I think some of our listeners are actually thinking now, so Leo, he's talking about a prototype. You're showing a prototype to users. Yeah. Right. But why is it that not a prototype? Right. So on the website, presumptivedesign.com, uh, Charles and I have written mm -hmm. a series of essays about, um, I happen to be a uh, uh, adore uh, Lewis Carroll, the English uh, fantasy writer from the uh, mm. 1800s, Alice in Wonderland. And so there's a, a puzzle that he posed in Through the Looking Glass, or sorry, through in the Alice, through the, uh, Alice in Wonderland well at the Mad Hatter's party. He says, why is a raven like a writing desk, right? Mm. It's a very famous puzzle, mm. which he had no answer to. And he, he just enraged all of society in London <laughs> that he had no answer to this <laughs> puzzle. He eventually was forced to create an answer Concourse for it, an answer, like yeah. 20 years later. Right? <laughs> okay, so we talk about, there's like seven or eight articles about why is a raven like a writing desk. So why is presumptive design not like, and we have a series of those things, one of which is prototyping, rapid mm. prototyping. Why mm. is it not like rapid prototyping? Mm. Lou Rosenfeld and I were talking about this yesterday this notion of a magical artifact from the future, you must accept the fact that it is from the future. It already exists. So if that's the case, there's nothing to prototype. It's, it's, it's the thing. Yeah, it's, yes. it's done, mm. right? Mm. In prototyping, you're not sure, right? You're, mm. you're trying to work through the elegant revision of the solution to get to a better solution. And that's a perfectly appropriate approach for the execution cycle mm. of the design process. Mm -hmm. But where this falls, where presumptive design falls, is in the early stages where we're still trying to figure out the strategy, whether it's the product strategy or business strategy. We don't know what the problem really is. And yet this artifact tells us that there must have been a problem because it came from the future and this was a solution. So rather than iterating on the artifact, we throw the artifact away. Mm. We literally, it's a throwaway. It could be a, a piece of garbage. And the book cover shows a pond with a series of ripples. That's what happens when you throw a stone in the pond. The artifact is the stone. The ripples are the response from your users. You're interested in the pattern of ripples, not in the artifact itself. Prototyping, on the other hand, is we think we know what the solution is, but we need to refine it in a way that is the best possible outcome. So we're going to continue to cycle and, and um, uh, execute mm -hmm. on and iterate yeah. on uh, the creation of a, of a, of a better product. Mm -hmm. Did that, is that? 
resonates. Yeah, yeah. excellent. So, yeah. so could you say that it's 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 about the framing, then? Absolutely. That we'd, we'd frame a prototype as something that's not finished. We'd be quite clear of the fact that this is just a, a, a prototype. Mm. Whereas with an artifact from the future, then we're saying we're framing it as this is finished. That's right. And, and also with the prototype, you have an intent. Can you perform this task? We don't have that intent for the artifact. Right. We don't ask whether you can yeah. perform the task. Yeah. We ask them to perform the task yeah. because we presume that was the task that mm. this thing was built yes. to do. <laughs> and when you take yeah. that posture, yeah. right, what we say in the book is avoid the presumptive mood. Mm -hmm. It's not would you, could you, should mm -hmm. you. It's please do this, mm -hmm. right? It's a more directive mm -hmm. uh, 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 um, facilitation. Mm -hmm. Now the user is expecting of themselves that they should be able to do this because they've been directed to do it. When they are unable to do it, they will stop dead in their tracks and mm -hmm. say, I can't do that task. Mm -hmm. And you say, but why not? Mm -hmm. And they say, because I don't have anything that indicates the Fribowitz function. Mm. The Fribowitz function? Mm. Tell me about the Fribowitz function. Mm. <laughs> and now we have a story about mm. the Fribowitz function, yeah. right? And now we can say, oh, we apologize. We didn't know that's what it was called, but that's what this part of the artifact is supposed to do. Now that you know that this part of the artifact addresses the Fribowitz function, mm. can you do the task? Mm. Mm. Because the artifact is so ambiguous, when it came back from the future, it sort of got destroyed. Um, we can make it appear to be anything we want it. So we can change it midstream, mid-conversation. It can mm. suddenly become this other thing, mm. right? You can see how that changes in terms of it, uh, how an artifact from the future is very different from a prototype. Mm. In a prototype, we would want to revise the artifact in order to... Uh, reveal the Fribowitz function better. Mm. In the case of this artifact from the future, we don't care about it being revealed better. Mm. We simply want to learn more about why it's yeah. important. Mm. So as a provocation, mm. this thing uh, can, can play a very uh, instrumental and ambiguous role. Right. Excellent. Thank you. That made a lot of sense to me. Well, good. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad. Well, yeah. thank you. There's a lot of uh, material up on the site. Mm presumptivedesign.com, we have the first full chapter up there, which is kind of like a, you know, Shakespearean play in the fact mm. that you get the full overture of mm. the book in the first chapter, so you can get a sense mm. of, of what the rest of the chapters are about. So, thank you very much for the opportunity to chat with you today. Thank you, Lee. Thanks for joining us. Okay. Mm. All right. So we're joined by Lou Rosenfeld now, uh, who's just done his um, opening keynote here at Interact London, which wasn't so much of a keynote, more of a key exercise. And we, when we interviewed back in episode 129 earlier this year, the end of the interview, we talked about the Designing a Better You talk that you would give. And just give everyone a quick reminder about what it was. Yeah, so um, it wasn't even a talk. It was basically an exercise to help people explain themselves. There's a lot of contexts that are, uh, we have to kind of very quickly uh, almost provide a mission statement of whom we are. And uh, it might be at a cocktail party, it might be in an elevator, it might be your Twitter bio, it might be on your gravestone. There's mm. a, a number of contexts that we kind of want to have a quick way to explain ourselves. And for those of us in this field, like, we're kind of weird. We, people don't get us. Yeah. I always tell the story, and I did today, about like being at cocktail parties with my wife and and, you know, someone asks me, what do you do? And I just sweat. Mm -hmm. and I, I, I grab her and I have her explain me and then I run away. Mm -hmm. So the exercise is basically a, a very simple-minded approach to 
get people to tell their story to a partner. Uh, the partner takes notes. They do this for five minutes. Mm. And uh, it, it's not as easy as it sounds because when you're telling your story, you're vulnerable. You're often doing it with a stranger. Mm. I just did it in front of you know, all of you, 150 people. It's mm. not so easy. Uh, but then you get some notes, and then you spend five minutes together with your partner writing it up into a statement that makes sense. And uh, we did that um, in pairs. Uh, everyone got a chance to be in both roles of, of telling their own story and then a- and being the note taker slash listener. And so everyone then they switched places. Yeah, and we, um, me and Pear actually, of course, were sat here, so we took part in the in the exercise this morning as well. But not oh, you did not yeah. we did with the shadow. No. We, we actually chose someone we didn't know exactly, which was fun. Yeah. Oh, you didn't do it with each other. No, no, no. no we didn't oh, because okay. you know you, you encouraged us to not do it with mm, someone right. that we know mm. so well. So we we switched places a little bit, and I did it with a guy, Ed, and um, and it was it was really really interesting because. Um, I think one of the speakers brought it up towards the end. Mm. Um, it was five minutes of, l- I mean, forced listening is what the, the lady said in the audience, but I think it's just five minutes of, of being there and actually taking the time to listen. And by writing mm. notes, then mm. you're having that interview situation, which some people don't have in their roles mm-hmm. as, as UXers or designers. Mm. So, so five minutes of listening to someone mm. else and then working with them to pull out those, those keywords and that was, was a little bit therapeutic. It is, and I think it's really enlightening how how much can happen in that short amount of time. Mm. There were so many members of the audience saying, oh, oh, I realized this this about myself, or I realized that I got to know a person I didn't know who actually works at the same place as me. And And that's why we started with that, so people at this conference can actually Mm. right away know someone. Mm. Yeah, uh, have someone and have something in common. Um, yeah, I mean, there's like this, uh, this this rare opportunity that exercises like this provide for us to talk about ourselves, and it's okay. Mm-hmm. You're being allowed to, you're given permission, uh, and it's yes, it's forced listening. It's all forced, but it's short. And so some of the the benefits that some people mentioned are, uh, hey, do this with a client. Yeah, exactly what right. I was going to say. That was brought up as well as yeah. a point, and it made me think of when we talked to Whitney Hess. Um, a year mm. or so ago and she said about doing that with new client new customers kind of getting to know something about them that's not job related just that kind of little bit of personal information that gives you mm-hmm. a much you've got a better way into the empathy you can you can actually relate to them better as people individuals and, and you have much better meetings better mm. workshops and so on and this could be an excellent tool well also on teams uh, I mean yeah. I've seen this again and again people say oh I'm going to have my designer mm. And my developer sit down together and do this. Right, Someone yes. today mentioned mm. doing something like this on mm. the first day of their new job mm. and how that was so amazing for them to get an, a sense of who they're going to be working with. Mm. Uh, you know, there's just a, a, a lot of opportunities to actually understand yourself and mm. another person uh, through an exercise like this. Uh, there's a lot of places, actually, a lot of contexts where mm. that it's really valuable, and yet we don't really take advantage of it. So it's just a simple-minded approach, easy to do, doesn't cost any money. Mm. Uh, I wrote an article in Boxes and Arrows on doing this a couple of years ago. If you go to boxesandarrows.com, search Rosenfeld, yeah. uh, you'll find it pretty quickly. Yeah. Excellent. I actually got my, 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 d- my 10-year-old daughter had some homework this week, um, and the homework was to interview someone about their job. And I'm sat here now thinking, oh, no, if we'd only had only this conference last week and the homework next week, <laughs> then I'd, I'd have been able to just kind of like, bam, there you go. Here's a sentence. Because that is a problem, though. It's part of the UX industry. We have yeah. a hard time defining ourselves. But it's also a telltale sign of the times, I think, modern times. People yeah. have professions that didn't exist before, and it's hard to just explain what you do. Yeah. And it won't exist 
a year or two. Yes. It seems. So uh, we're, we're yeah. constantly. I think I repackaged, relabeled, mm. and you're, you're in a mm. constant state of evolution. Mm. So you can't say, I'm a plumber mm. or right. I'm a dentist. Mm. These kind of classic school labels that you used to have on occupations mm. are just so fuzzy and grey now. Yeah. And that's a, that's, that is one of the biggest challenges I think we face internally. Yeah. And also part of it was like being vulnerable. And we don't allow ourselves to be vulnerable that often, but actually telling people about things you'd like to do that you're not doing today or things you're thinking about doing that you haven't really dared do yet. Uh, and when you do th- things like that, you get to know people. You work better as a team as well. And I think that's really important. Okay, you know your job, but you know your team members. And when you know your team members better, you do a better job. Well, and also just, I mean, like one person actually mentioned, um, like, you know, how he, you know, realized his role was, was kind of teaching old Oh, yeah. uh, developers, mm. new tricks, and mm. then he immediately stepped back from that. Mm. And I think mm. I- in in articulating what he's doing out loud and doing it in somewhat of a public setting, he was forced to then step back and, and sort of look at what he had come up with critically. Mm. And mm. it, I think, gave him an opportunity to create empathy mm. with those people that he might not have had that for before. Very true. You well, you know, anyway, we got 150 people, primarily Brits, to talk about themselves <laughs> oh. 9 a.m. <laughs> that's majestic. I mean, that's that was, to me, the most impressive thing mm. because uh, this is uh, the, a somewhat reticent country. Mm. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I was really grateful for that. Huge, huge, huge feat in himself. So thank you for doing that with us. Thank you. Thanks, Lee. So every time I do an exercise like this, it's I'm always reminded of how... how extremely satisfying it is to have someone listen to you, to actually open their ears and perhaps not even say anything. But as you are talking about yourself, you realize things about yourself as well. Maybe that's what I like about the podcast. Just <laughs> just being able to go on and on without being interrupted, but knowing there's someone out there listening to you. Uh, I think um, mm. for me, I, one of the reflections mm. I had when we sat there doing it was was actually how how nice it was to, to, to listen to someone. So not to be listened to, but actually how nice it was to listen to someone uninterrupted in kind of like peace, I suppose, for five minutes. You know, because we were all sat in an auditorium, yeah. like, you know, a cinema-like auditorium. And, and you know, there's lots of chattering going on because people are talking, but you were very, it was very personal just to sit there and listen to someone. And mm. I, I like that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it was very mindful, actually, because they yeah. weren't expecting you to respond because they knew they were just expected to talk about themselves. Yeah, for the first five minutes anyway. So it's and very then, non- non-judgmental in that way. I love it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, similar and then, and then exercise. Discussing for five minutes simi- as well when you can, yeah. you can um, you actually discuss after the first five minutes. So it's, it's as, as a circular kind of process with five minutes listening, five minutes discussion, five minutes listening, five minutes discussion. It's yes. a 20 minutes that's really, really quite useful. Um, a great warm-up to a conference. Yes, and not only that, there were so many examples of where people could use this, and I think it's something you probably should be doing almost every week, on a weekly basis with someone, allowing yourself to open up and listening to someone else. Oh, right, you mean like that. I thought you meant write your Twitter Twitter bio. Um, Ooh, that would be interesting, actually, rewrite your Twitter bio every... Every week. Every week. (laughs) When we started talking about uh, uh, experience architecture uh, the other day, I mm-hmm. actually added XA to my Twitter bio. <laughs> you did do? Yes, I oh. did. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about your Twitter bio was after this exercise. Oh, yeah, because we, mm. we, we worked on it and produced something. Mm. I mean, we had quite a lot of... It's difficult to get a concise one-sentence thing by the end of this 
like little process to be yeah. fair um but one thing i got which was a kind of um a sentence that you could use potentially um was building bridges between people and ideas okay nice which is actually quite nice yeah i like that um and that was that was interesting that i didn't write that that was that was someone else writing that after listening to me talk mm. for five minutes, and they didn't know me and hadn't met me and hadn't listened to the podcast. Oh, that's so, fantastic! Yeah, so really interesting about the things yeah. you mention and the things you don't mention when you open up to someone for the first time. Yeah, Dan gave me this one line, which is would be part of a bio, I guess. Uh, changing the person, not the product. Uh, which I really liked because, of course, I was talking about coaching as I usually do. And I realized, mm. okay, so I'm not – because we always talk about we're designing products, but instead I'm trying to design what the person will become after using the product. Right, mm. yeah. Nice. Yeah. So while we're trying this exercise that um, Lou's described, moving on to a little reflections about Leo. I like this kind of, I like the provocative nature of this um, idea of using a, a, an artifact or like a, um, a possible solution to something to, to antagonize um, the people you're testing it with. Um, as, as in contrast to when you like rapid prototyping and so on, this, mm. this whole idea of, of critique over ideation, that getting people to um, say, reveal the things they didn't like about something in effect, reveals what they really want. Exactly. Yes, I really love that. And it's 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 no, I I, I like the process. It's a great but way I've of got... getting new perspectives, isn't it? Really, just get find new ways of finding information, and so try this way instead. Instead of instead of thinking what it could be like, think of what it is already. Uh, mm. And I actually, I actually was able to merge these two talks in my head. You know, mixing is all about <laughs> innovation. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I thought, that, yes. So when I'm thinking about coaching and, and listening to someone and describe their goals in the future, they're trying to imagine themselves in that place in ten years. And here we're mm. trying to imagine. So that product is already there. We're in that place in ten years using the product. Um, mm. So it's all about frame of reference and just changing that into just. It's time travel, like Leo said. Yeah, but mm. isn't this though? Isn't this the a, a form of therapy? That I mean, that, what Leo's described here is is, is kind of because he's, just, he's saying that um, the idea here is that he's using these magical artifacts from the future as a way of um, basically showing a team. Well, there are the beloved babies. There are, there are things that are beloved by the internal team. So this is mm. a, a method for giving the team therapy and making them, like I think Leo said in the interview. Um, being able to say, use this as a vehicle to say to a team or a company, your product's rubbish. It's going to bring your company <laughs> yes. down. It's going to send you to the to, you know, to the dogs. Um, so it's very therapeutic. Um, That's so true. I love that. But I, I think it's, I actually wonder though, if this whole technique though, with the way, you've, way that Leo described it and used it, it's kind of like polyfill. It, it's it's um, a tool you'd use when something is broken or potentially broken okay, as you wouldn't yeah. you, do you know what i mean as in you wouldn't if you were designing something from scratch if you're doing all this from scratch and kind of doing things oh, i'm going to say the right way but i'm i'm you can all of you <laughs> out there can can see me putting um, finger quotes around the right way mm. um but uh, this you wouldn't use 
as a first choice in that sense. This is this is a fallback. This is something that like Leo's been using for fifteen years as a tool when he goes in to work with clients and to get them to understand and learn more mm. about their precious precious solutions and to make them realise that maybe they aren't quite the right thing um as right a thing as they thought. Interesting. I'm I'm not sure I agree with you. I, I'm thinking, well, as always, well, well, my perspective was that you should use different tools, and this would be one tool in your suitcase. And mm. you may be right, because it, well, these things are probably difficult to, difficult to get buy-in for. Mm. Of course, he, he argued that it's really quick to put one of these prototypes together. You can just... <laughs> it's, it's not a prototype. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Freudian slip. <laughs> yeah, you even asked the question: What's the difference between prototype and artifact? I know, but, but, but I think uh, interesting. Even though I'm being provocative by by saying um, this, maybe isn't what you do as mm. the right way. Mm. Um, Leo said he'd been using this technique for 15 years and has mm. always learned something. Mm. He's never had the case where the client's yes. idea has been perfect from the beginning mm. and the users have loved it mm. full on outright. Mm. So what I may be coming full circle there and saying. We always mess up the production, the, the kind of generation of ideas and, and the, those first early ideas. So this is a good technique to always do as part of the right way because yes. we're, always, we're always a bit wrong. Yes, we're always wrong. We're always learning. and We're always guessing. I've never had even a five-minute conversation with a potential user, person, participant, actor without learning something. Exactly. Yeah. Always learning by listening to users. Hmm. There we go. Right. Uh, show notes are as uh, per usual on our website uxpodcast.com you can follow us pretty much anywhere as a UX podcast sign up for our backstage mailing list by DMing us your email address on Twitter which is fast because we know you're on your phone right now probably <laughs> or just email us at backstage at uxpodcast.com you can also visit the website and um, it's pretty easy to find subscribe there and you should do that the backstage mailing list has some Quite often we give little discounts, um, advance warning of things, and some mm. inside track stories about um, our, our adventures as UX Podcast. Yes. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Mm-hmm.